This podcast is part of a pod course offered for ASHA CEU credit through SpeechTherapyPD.com. As part of the December to Remember sales event, SpeechTherapyPD.com is offering all pod courses for $9.99 apiece through the end of December. That's more than 35 episodes of First Bite with Michelle Dawson and The Speech Link with Char Beauchart for just $9.99 apiece. To get this discount, simply use the code JOY at checkout. SpeechTherapyPD.com is a certified ASHA CE provider. Char Beauchart here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, this is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal. I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of SpeechTherapyPD.com? She said, no. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video, a huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said, they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no. Their plans start at $89 a year, for heaven's sake. And then I said, do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, okay, I'm looking them up right now. And so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. Hello and welcome to The Speech Link, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Shara Beauchart, speech-language pathologist, and I invite you to join us as we share practical strategies to take your therapy to the next level. We'll talk with experienced experts who have achieved extraordinary results and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Today, I'd like to share a bit of inside information for you. Several months ago, I sent out an open request to those on my Therapy Matters weekly blog, and the request was for names of individuals they would like to hear interviewed on my podcast. Well, they're a good group, and primarily SLPs, and gratefully, they shared lots of really good suggestions. There was one recurring name, however, Linda Eve Seth. I got excited. Linda's one of the most down-to-earth, intelligent, and creative people I know. So I set out on a mission to schedule her to be a guest on The Speech Link. I contacted her, and she was thrilled at the prospect of sharing her information, and then we ran into a snag. The internet. Or more accurately, the lack of internet strength to do the recording. You see, Linda and her husband live in a very rural area of West Virginia. She checked the level of the internet at her home, It wasn't enough. In fact, the county where she lives has the lowest reception. 
She also went to a nearby library. She knows the people there, and they said she was welcome to use their Internet. Well, the library Internet connection wasn't adequate either. I knew there had to be a way, and I was determined to find it. I wanted you to hear Linda. So, what you are about to hear is the final result of our podcast recording. Want to know how we did it without internet? (laughs) Without a smartphone? We recorded it over her landline phone. Is the acoustic quality the greatest? No, and I apologize for that. But is the content beneficial? Oh yeah, you bet. Here we go. My guest today is Linda Eve Seth. She's a speech-language pathologist and a school therapist, an author, and a nationally recognized seminar presenter. And in full disclosure, I've been with her on the road doing seminars through the Bureau of Education and Research, and she's not only interesting and animated, but she inspires SLPs to use non-traditional, educationally sound activities to motivate students, and are you ready for this, without relying on worksheets. It's a series she wrote called Grow, G-R-O-W, and I'm hoping that she'll share more of that information with us. So, from the inner city schools of New Jersey to the last one-room schoolhouse in West Virginia, her teaching experience is vast and varied. In fact, Linda's more than 40 years' experience as a speech-language pathologist, plus her six years of experience as a classroom teacher, and her natural ability as a raconteur, an interesting storyteller, makes her a stimulating and thought-provoking podcast guest. You are in for a treat. Welcome to the Speech Link, Linda. Hi, Char. Thanks for that great introduction. I'd love to meet that lady that you were talking about. <laughs> that thanks is... for inviting me on to your podcast. Oh, thanks for coming on. I'm just so excited that you're here, and I can't wait to hear you. Linda, you are one of the most interesting people I know. You are a <laughs> midwife. You live on an organic farm in West Virginia, and you work the farm. And I got to thinking about this. Maybe it's there in the peacefulness and the physical work that you come up with incredible insights about kids and therapy. So let's jump in. You're talking today about listening, language, and love. And I have a feeling that you might say that love is one of the the things that pulls it all together. So why don't we begin with love? Saying that love pulls it together is probably a good way to express it because I uh, I work on that premise from several different approaches, several different directions. Um, I always had a slogan, a motto up in my classroom that said, teach what you love. When you love something, you have a passion for it. And there is nothing more contagious than, than enthusiasm or passion. So... I would encourage all the, all my listeners to share their passion. So this is kind of the first step in uh, operating from a position of love. Share your passions, whether it's that you collect teapots or that you happen to love pigs or cows. <laughs> um, maybe you're an avid quilter or collector of quilts, or maybe you love spiders. W- whatever it is, If you bring your favorite things into your classroom, into your teaching, into your lesson plans, you can build a lesson around them, 
decorate your classroom with them, uh, incorporate any and all appropriate IEP goals and objectives into a plan. For example, if you love spiders like I do, my, I gave lots of homework assignments that had spiders with eight legs, and they had to put a word on each leg. <laughs> okay. I, uh, you know, you can develop simple stories. Like if you're a quilter, you can teach sequencing and how you make a quilt, and then bring quilts in that you've made or collected and share them with the kids. I believe that it's a simple way, but an important thing to do, to um, share a bit of yourself with the kids. My students were always fascinated by the fact that this old lady liked spiders. It <laughs> got everybody's attention. Mm -hmm. It was just weird enough that they never forgot it. I mean, 20 years later, they'll stop and point at me and say, you're the one that loves spiders. <laughs> and when, when they make that connection with me, that empowers them to share their secrets and their passions right back. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge step in establishing rapport with those kids. So by sharing your passions, you are advancing your agenda, the first step of which always says establish rapport. And you're enthusiastic. So whatever lesson you have based on your quilts or your teapots or your spiders, you're going to get more excited about it. Mm -hmm. And the kids are going to enjoy it more. Mm -hmm. So taking that, and I, I probably do not enjoy your love of spiders like you do. <laughs> But I could see Googling spiders and getting tons of vocabulary and all sorts of information about the different types and what they do and where they live and the webs and all of that vocabulary. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about as well? Yes, yes. Um, for me, with my arachnum, arachnid love, in the month of October, while everyone did pumpkins, witches, skeletons, and ghosts, I did spiders from October 1st to October 31st. In mm -hmm. every lesson I taught, I only decorated with spiders. I had no skeletons, just spiders and spider webs. And to this day, I still create new lessons centered around spiders, and I still travel to schools in three counties now doing a PowerPoint show about spiders. And every time I do it, I get connected to the kids in that classroom just because it's so oddball, I guess. Interesting. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that about you. So teach what you love. You know, a lot of us love a lot of things. And I bet, you know, I don't know how you came up with that, but I could see where I would choose things that the kids love. But you're saying that it's a good thing as well to choose something that you love because that demonstrates the passion that you have for it and that'll pull the kids in. See, I've always looked at it, oh, I got to find something that the kids like. And and I think well, that's probably sure. a good thing too, but I think that's a really good idea because, I mean, I happen to like cats, which I have done a lot of stuff with cats and there are other kids that like cats, but pulling in something that they don't necessarily like would be a step into discovery, I would think. Right, 
Right. What what I like about it, I mean, I didn't, I like spiders because I weave in my spare time. And spiders mm. are nature's weavers. So I started reading about spiders and became literally fascinated with them. I still learn things about spiders every year. I'm learning more about them. And I realized that if I told the kids that, it would make them sit up and pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. Then, once you've made that connection with them, you invite them to share their passions right back with you so that you it's a two-way street as far as their interests mm-hmm. and yours. Oh, I like that. Tell me more. But, what else do you have? Well, there's more to the aspect of love in therapy. I always felt that if I can sincerely and genuinely demonstrate that I love my students on an individual level, one by one, that I really love them, they will love me back. And then they will work hard at whatever challenges I set before them because they want to please me because they enjoy my company. They enjoy me. Mm -hmm. Uh, They love me. Mm -hmm. And I guess it sounds kind of corny, but I would say never underestimate the power of love, even in the classroom. You know, you you can't go around hugging and kissing the kids or buying them presents. That's not what I mean by love. Right. I think there's a perfect, a perfectly politically correct way to demonstrate your love for a child, and that's to listen to them. Ah. I mean, really listen to them when they have something to tell you. Listening to a kid is a wonderful gift to give them, and and they don't often enough get that gift in their lives. Mm -hmm. Very few adults give their undivided attention to what a child is saying. So be that adult that gives 100% of your attention to the kid when they tell you about their cat or their jump rope experience or their video game. You don't have to do it for half an hour. I might allow two minutes at the beginning of a session, but I give them my undivided attention. So not only are you gifting them with your attention, but if you but you're modeling good, focused listening, and then they learn that from you and will return the favor by really listening to you. Makes total sense. So you are listening to them. And you're listening to their content, uh, you know, if you're on, in articulation therapy. Do you ever do therapy during that time? <laughs> or is it strictly just interactive time? What I mostly do is take notes during that time. Ah. You know, I, I want to know how they're doing with their targeted sound or language structure. Um, and I'll just sit and, and make quick notes when I hear errors or when I hear them doing something right. But I don't interrupt the flow of their talking to me to say, whoa, back up and say that again. Right. Um, I have a little boy I'm working with who presented nine months ago at age five and a half with no consonants in his speech at all. And I was talking to him a few weeks ago. I've been working with him once a week. He travels 40 miles to see me once a week, mm-hmm. 40 miles one way. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to him about Halloween costumes and what he was going to be and what his sisters were going to be. And, and I mm-hmm. did interrupt him because I said to him, Daniel, 
We're having a conversation, and I understand you. How cool is that? <laughs> and, and we both, like, stood up and did a little jig and high-fived and then continued our talk. Now, that, I mean, that was just yeah. a genuine response. I didn't plan to do that. Right. And and it, it really did just occur to me at that moment, oh, my goodness, he's made so much improvement that we can have a conversation for the first time oh. in nine months. Wow. So that's that's the love. You know, getting excited and sharing that and being able to high-five and dance a jig, that's all about sharing love. It's way beyond presenting a canned therapy session and sitting and taking data. I am not opposed to data, but it certainly has its place. Our first obligation is to the child. And I'm going to say that obligation is based in love. And sitting across from a child and marking down whether he's doing it correct or not correct, if I were that child, I would be a nervous wreck. (laughs) I would be. But sitting across from somebody that has eye contact with me, that has a uh, you know, a look on their face of interest and their body language is they're leaning toward me and they're nodding every once in a while. That's going to keep me talking. That's right. You get it, Char. Mm-hmm. You absolutely mm-hmm. get it. Mm-hmm. And I don't have as much expertise in articulation or in, in, in voice therapy, things like that. But I've got lots of love to give them. And that just made up for any holes in my education and and my background. I understand. Now, have you pretty much said what you want to say about love, or would you like to move into listening or language? I'd like to move on to listening, because if I'm listening to them and they're listening to me, then the next thing to talk about is how to facilitate effective listening, effective auditory uh, skills. Good. How do you do that? Well, Um, I'm big on mottos on the wall and and short things that capture the attention. And then I started by saying one of my signs always said, teach what you love. Mm -hmm. But another one always said, better listeners become more effective students. So no Mm -hmm. matter what their speech goals and objectives are, I teach listening as a component to every single lesson I do. Whether I'm going into a classroom to teach grammar or vocabulary, um, or whether I'm sitting in the therapy room working on vocalic R or um, disfluency issues, I'm going to make listening a part of the lesson. And, uh, you know, we, we spend about half, about 50% of our time listening as opposed to speaking, reading, writing. We spend about 50% of our time listening. But at school, the kids spend more like 90% of their school day in listening. They're expected to listen. And yet we don't teach them how to be good listeners. We just say, come on, come on, I need you to listen. Well, that's not effective. So just like any other skill, listening takes practice. And I think if you give the kids a few simple rules to observe and follow, they can be trained or taught how to be better listeners. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the primary grades, 
I teach eyes, ears, mouth, brain, whole body. So your eyes on the speaker, your ears listening to the voice of the person who's speaking, whether it's me or Santa Claus, that's what they need to be listening to. Not not the secretary's high heels that she clicks by, clicks by in the hallway, but to, to my voice. Um, your mouth has to be closed. And I always tell the kids the way we're built, your ears can't work if your mouth is. So the mouth has to be quiet. Their brain has to think about what I'm talking about. So if I'm talking about spiders, they shouldn't be planning what video game they're going to play at home tonight. They should be picturing those cute, fuzzy, eight-legged creatures that I'm talking about. And their whole body needs to be still so they don't distract their neighbors um, or make noises that would distract even themselves. Mm -hmm. So I teach them to say, I'll say to them, what do you need to be good listeners? And I want them to say back to me, eyes, ears, mouth, brain, whole body. Now, at an upper level, that would obviously be kind of insulting to walk into fourth grade and teach that. So you, you use the same concepts, but with slightly more elevated language. Keep your eyes on the speaker. Think about the topic being discussed. Lean forward towards the listener. Ask questions or ask for clarification if you don't understand. It's really the same thing as eyes, ears, mouth, brain, whole body. There's there's lots. There's something called SLANT. I think it's an it's an acronym that comes out of the University of Kansas. S is for sit up straight. L for lean forward. Uh, let's see. A activate your thinking. N note important points. And T track the talker. That's SLANT. Mm -hmm. And it's really the same thing as where I started. Eyes, ears, mouth, brain, whole body. It really is just more elevated language. And and the thing about leaning forward, um, tracking the talker, if you function follows form. So if you act like a good listener, you will be more likely be a good listener. So, you know, we go through eyes, ears, mouth, brain, whole body in a primary class. And what happens is if the kids trying to prove to me that they're doing it, lean forward, pop their eyes open wide and stare at me. And they're all ready to listen. I do have a couple of other tricks that get the kids ready to listen. When I'm in, in a classroom teaching a, a lesson for a whole classroom. I mean, you could do this in a small group setting or you can do it in the whole classroom setting. I stand in front of the class and I wait till the desks are clear. We've, we've you know, established that I don't want anything on their desk previously. And then when everybody's just about ready to look at me, I say to them, good morning, boys and girls. And they are expected to reply as if in one voice, good morning, Mrs. Seth. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's very old-fashioned, isn't it? But what I get is everybody on the same page yes, and everybody's attention right on me. So I just tell them, this is what I'm going to expect from you. When I come in and I greet you, I want you to repeat the greeting and then use my name. So sometimes I go in and say, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Easter, or I might even choose a different language. I might say, konnichiwa, boys and girls. 
And then when they stutter back, konnichiwa, this is that. I tell them that that's Japanese. We take about literally 45 seconds to talk about the fact that Japan is an island nation. They have a very polite and respectful culture. And then I talk about words in English that came from the Japanese. Words like, they all know them, kimono, tofu, Subaru, Kawasaki. And then in 45 seconds, I've taught a multicultural lesson, and everybody can't wait to hear the next thing I've got to say. Great technique. That's uh, terrific. I have to tell you that my principal for 20 years, when he had to write a report at the end of the year for what we did to address multiculturalism in my school, always cited my multicultural greetings. How about that? He, he counted that as something worth re- putting on his report to the State Department. Makes sense. So we're in listening, but that also involves thinking and critical thinking skills. How do you combine listening and critical thinking skills? Well, I'm glad you asked me. I heard you mention in the intro that I try as much as possible to avoid worksheets. I would say 100% of the time I avoid worksheets. Yes. So you have to engage first their listening and then their critical thinking to pull off an effective lesson. And uh, it's worthwhile to, to use those emphases because I don't know if our listeners recall who Jim Trelease is, mm-hmm. but I, um, he passed away probably 10 years ago, but he was considered the, maybe the king of read aloud. He was originally a school, pr- a teacher and then a school principal who just put a huge emphasis on reading aloud to the kids. And he did more to push that concept than any single person. And mm-hmm. one of the things Jim always said is the more words a child hears, the easier will be their entry into literacy. So that includes the grammar and all the vocabulary skills that we are charged with teaching. So if we talk, for example, about language skills as far as vocabulary acquisition, we want to energize their thinking skills, their critical thinking, and we want to make learning the new vocabulary fun and functional. And if you give them a worksheet that says, circle the correct meaning, put this word into a sentence, circle the word that is a synonym for good, that's not fun, Mm -hmm. and I suspect it's barely functional. Yes. So (laughs) by emphasizing the auditory skills and minimizing paper and pencil tasks, you engage kids who might slip through the cracks on standard paper and pencil tasks, and you get them excited about learning language, so learning vocabulary in in particular. So you have to, um, okay, for example, to include critical thinking in a vocabulary lesson, I find it's much more efficacious to compare concepts. So if the teacher has taught synonyms in September, she doesn't perhaps talk about them again, and then in December she teaches antonyms. I would go in 
and remind them what synonyms are, remind them what antonyms are, and then do a lesson that contrasts and compares, that's critical thinking, Mm -hmm. that contrasts and compares synonyms and antonyms. And at the end of the lesson, they have a much better handle on what those two concepts refer to. So I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll kind of come back to that, I think. Okay. But um, another thing, and I just did it when I was talking to you, in terms of increasing their listening and their critical thinking and their vocabulary level, is to use elevated language. So I could have said, oh, it's a much more effective way. But no, I said efficacious. And I put it into, I I believe, I hope, I tried, I put it into a sentence that would provide the context clue so that you, I'm sure you knew the word, but if somebody did not, they could discern the meaning of the word from the context in which I put it. And as a teacher, that's one of the things you need to do. You don't talk down. You talk three or four levels above their grade level. And you know, the more you raise your expectations, the more the kids rise to meet them. So you use big words, not inappropriate words, but big words instead of dumbing down your vocabulary. And then you don't want to simply define a word, like I'm not going to say, oh, efficacious means blah, 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 and then just leave it alone. You want to work it. You want to reuse it. You want to Uh, reveal its synonyms, consider if it has antonyms. Um, A word like efficacious isn't a good example, but if you use the word um, knowledge and you identify that no, K-N-O-W is the root word, then you want to talk about expanding that word with affixes, and you want to revisit the new word five, six, eight times in the course of that one day where you've just introduced the word. So they have to be good listeners to get the benefit out of something like that. But if they are, if you've trained them to that, and you present the the word in all these different ways and expand it and build on it, you're increasing their ability to think critically about the word and to get a handle on the new word so that it becomes more familiar to them. There's so many ways to foster their word consciousness, their awareness of an interest in words. And one of the ways, I mean, some of the ways to do it are to, you know, just get them wrapped up in what you're saying so they want to understand what you're saying. But um, word consciousness also implies playing with the word, hink pinks, rhyming words. Ways of exploring the words that aren't just straight, write a definition for this word. You know, my kids in high school were told to take 10 words. They were given 10 words every week in high school, honors English, and told to look up the meanings of those words and write it down word for word from the dictionary. I had words with that teacher because Mm -hmm. that's no way to teach vocabulary in honors English in high school. And so then, of course, having made a fuss about it, I had to sit down and get serious about how do you teach vocabulary. And it was actually shortly after that that I published my book called Vocabulary Growth because I started exploring how to really effectively teach vocabulary. I think another thing, 
Well, let me give you an example. This kind of comes from the world of grammar, but I'm sure you're aware, and, and the listeners probably are too, that you can't teach grammar without teaching vocabulary and vice versa. You can't teach vocabulary effectively without the kids recognizing what part of speech that word can fulfill. So you've, you've got both things going on simultaneously. So if you're teaching, for example, adjectives, this is a, a good example of a hands-on activity that is more than just a simple paper and pencil task, and it involves critical thinking. And that right. would be to take those paint chips that you can get at a paint store or your local large box store. You know, so they'll have six shades of pink from light to darker hues on one paint chip card. And I'll maybe put a set of words on the board. Like, um, I'm just off the top of my head. I'm not giving you a real challenging one, but if you had words like enormous, gigantic, huge, large, big, and then ask, I would ask the kids to write them on their cards and in going up the card from the lightest color to the darkest intensity from the word that is the least large to the word that has the largest meaning. So gigantic, enormous, uh, ginormous, which isn't really a word, but we all use it from time to time. And then arrange the words in order from the least to the most intense word. So you could do things like scream, yell, holler, bellow. And what I find is that it not only invokes the critical thinking, but you can have a tremendous discussion afterwards, which is going to increase their word consciousness. Because you might think, if you and I both did it, you might think a bellow is louder than a scream. And I might think the opposite. Mm -hmm. And we might get into quite an animated discussion <laughs> over which it is. And it, it points out the fact that word meanings are not necessarily cut and dry. They vary regionally. They vary based on your life experience. You know, if you had a dad who got really bent out of shape and bellowed at you when you did something wrong, no one will ever convince you there's anything louder than a bellow. <laughs> For me, I might have put yodel at the top of the list if it was on there because when I was out playing in the park, everybody else's parents would whistle or holler for them, and my mother would yodel. <laughs> now, that, what that did was it had the effect of getting me home ASAP so yes. she would stop. <laughs> and she knew that. <laughs> yes, she did. Yes. Yes, she did. Smart so lady. in my book, yodel is a very powerful word because of my life experience with it. And yes. that goes into the meaning that I will live with for the rest of my life for the word yodel. Sure. And that's valid when you're defining words, is your mm -hmm. own experience. And you don't get that out of a dictionary. No, you don't. No. And it personalizes it. And language is personal. Exactly. So we have moved into the language piece. So we know that listening does impact language instruction, most definitely. It impacts critical thinking skills. Now, this may be a question out of left field, but to me, much of thinking is asking ourselves questions. I mean, that's how we go through our entire day. Do you feel that the ability to formulate a question and ask ourselves questions helps our thinking? Is that one of your components 
Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I do an activity with the kids, and it is, in reality, it is one of the more challenging lessons that I offer, and I do it second grade and up. I mean, okay. you, could, you can do this in eighth grade with good results or with, with um, beneficial results. Mm-hmm. And that is, I give them an answer and challenge them to come up with a question that will elicit that response. So if I'm in a classroom or in a small group setting, I mean, you could do it on an individual basis, but really a lot more learning goes on if there's other kids in the group. I can say something like sunflower seeds and ask you to give me a question that will elicit that response, sunflower seeds. So sunflower seeds, what do birds like to eat? Sunflower seeds. Now, having asked that question or having someone ask that question, I would tell the kids, you may not use that format for the next question. What do blue jays eat? We've already had that kind of question. Ask me a different question that starts with a different word other than what and still will elicit the response, sunflower seeds. So they have to dig a lot, a little deeper. Mm-hmm. And the next person might say... Is there a snack you really like? And I could say sunflower seed. And then I would tell them, okay, I don't want you to ask me what birds eat. We've already talked about sunflower seeds as a snack. Can you ask another question that will elicit that response? And they might say something like they're paying attention and really digging deep. They might say, um, what are you planting in your garden? Mm -hmm. Sunflower seeds. So you have to start by coming up with a list of words or or phrases like sunflower seeds that are designed to elicit a wide range of questions. One time, and I hope this isn't um, X-rated, I don't think so, when I was teaching a seminar and I was doing that activity to demonstrate for the uh, SLPs in my audience how you have to carefully contrive the answer to elicit a range of responses. The word I gave them was every day. And somebody would say, when do you wash your face? My answer was every day. Okay, now I don't want to hear a question that says when. And the next person Mm. might say, um, I'm sorry, if they ask when do you brush your teeth, I might say no more personal hygiene. So no If they say, wash your face or brush your teeth, I don't want to hear another question about things we do every day to our personal hygiene. Ask me something else. And they might say, the kids in my school always asked, when is Walmart open? Every day. When does the sun come up? Every day. These are distinctly, discreetly different realms for use of the word every day. When I was teaching this in a seminar... One woman, I can almost picture this lady, and this is like 12 years later, raised her hand with a serious look on her face and said to me, and I said, don't ask a, word, don't ask a question that starts with when, all right? Now, who can come up with something that doesn't start with when but will still elicit every day? And the woman looked me straight in the eye and said, how often do you have sex? I almost <laughs> lost my lunch. <laughs> And I've never gotten that from the kid. That's a good thing. (laughs) But I looked at her with a straight face. I said, every day. Every day. day. (laughs) But it really did make my point. Yes. So I'm I'm making them think about the question 
to get to the answer that we want, which is a little different from what you actually asked me at first. But I do work on asking and having them learn to ask good questions. It's very important. Let's go into another realm because you've been talking about going into the classroom. So how do we help our students achieve carryover, I'm going to say, or generalization of targeted goals into the classroom? Do you go into the classroom as well for most of your kids or some of your kids? Yes, yes, absolutely, for most of my kids. I also go into classrooms where I have no students, but that's only because the teachers who had none of my students got jealous and wanted me to come in. So I I did do that too. But my original motivation to get into the classroom, to work in the classroom, was because I don't think that we can assess carryover of skills or really do our best job of teaching the language skills if you're in this artificial environment that is the beloved speech room. And I have, you know, no objections to bringing the kid into the room and working with them individually or in a small group setting. But how can I tell what they're really doing in terms of carryover if I don't see them in other settings? So don't ever tell my building principal, but I used to love lunch duty. I protested every year when he assigned me to it. <laughs> yes. But it was, it was always an opportunity to hear them in a different setting yes. or to be on the playground or to um, work with them in a club, or to sit with them during music class. But by going into their second, third, fourth grade, whatever, classroom, and teaching the lesson to the whole classroom, while always keeping in mind, and I could talk a little bit about how I do that, the targeted needs of my IEP kids or my RTI kids that need help, Mm -hmm. I was able to be much more effective and not only reach the, whatever, four or five targeted IEP kids, but reach 23 kids in the classroom and teach them too. So I had to go into the class and be prepared to take at least brief notes on their, let's say, sound production. So if they're working on R, I would make sure that the answer they gave, I could contrive the example or the task I set for them so that their targeted sound was certainly going to be part of their response. That's easy enough to do, although it takes a little experience, and I am, I will admit it, I am a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of person in all things, (laughs) and I trust my gut. So I'll go in and think, oh, I know what I can do at the last minute, and it'll turn out to be a a fairly um, brilliant idea that I didn't plan, it just occurred to me spontaneously. But in order to take good notes, I have to be prepared ahead of time. So I'll give you some ideas that um, I heard from other people, too. I would have a list of the kids. If I go into Miss Murphy's class and four of those kids are in my speech program or have to be monitored um, under a tiered model, I have their name and their targets written on a little checklist. And all I have to do while I'm teaching, I never even have to... I barely look away from the kids. I just have to quickly glance at my paper and make a check mark that indicates to me whether they use their target sound correctly, whether they gave me a good approximation, or whether they blew it all together. Okay. You know, and I might make a, a check, an X, and a dash. Just keep those notes simple. 
I have a friend who used to keep a piece of masking tape on her forearm. And hmm. she would write her notes right on that masking tape. And then she'd go back to her class, her speech room, and peel it off her arm, lay it on the desk, and transcribe her data. Huh. Um, somebody else once forgot her masking tape, so she just wrote it on her arm. Oh, dear. And there's all ways of doing this. Yeah. All right. Then there was a lady who told me, and maybe some of your people are adept, some of the people who are listening are adept enough to do this, but I couldn't pull it off. She would have, let's say she had two kids in that class who were working on speech sound or targeted language structures or fluency or even voice issues. She would have red rubber bands for one kid and blue rubber bands to represent the other kid. Her right-hand pocket meant they got it right, and her left-hand pocket meant they got it wrong. And every time one of those kids responded using their target structure or their good fluency or whatever, she would take the appropriate color rubber band and put it in the proper pocket and then go back home and just count them, go back to her classroom and count them. You'd have to be pretty adept at, I'm not sure it was, but it wasn't something I could pull off. I did better just... Having my sheet, I had copies of the Miss Murphy's room. Here's the four kids. Here's their targets. And I would just record hash marks, really, is what I used it for, and then go back and transcribe the data. But you can always structure your question or the task you set the child to, to include their target sound or their language structure target and, of course, if you're evaluating their fluency in voice, that doesn't matter what they're saying so much as how well you are listening to them. You can pull that off pretty easily. So did you see or hear or did the teacher tell you, because it's going to be hard to know, that they actually continued to do what you modeled? Um, you mean specifically the speech IEP kids or the kids in general? Well, the lesson or activity that you gave. Well, I had a form where I asked them to report back how efficacious, <laughs> how effective they thought the lesson was so that I would get feedback. But I did a lot of my, a lot of work in that area kind of um, informally. I call it bathroom stall planning or bathroom <laughs> stall discussion. Anywhere I caught the teacher was fair game, yes. you know, whether it was in the bathroom or the lunchroom, and I would just stop and say, you know. So I was talking about adverbs, and somebody, so-and-so was having trouble with them. Do you notice an improvement? I often ask the teachers to try to concentrate their attention during read-aloud time. Because if you say to a teacher, oh, just listen to them all day or any time during the day, they either forget or, or find it very challenging because they have so many other kids to manage and deal with. So if I gave them a certain time, when you have your small group reading, pay attention to how Joey says his S sound or how if Larry is including pronouns, you know, nominative case pronouns appropriately. And what I found, you know... Teachers are susceptible to anybody else to, uh, as far as being given a simple task and thinking, oh, I can do better than that. So if you give them a simple task, just listen during read-aloud time, I found that most of them would bleed over their listening into other times as well. Oh, Linda, you are a wealth of knowledge. How can we get a hold of your books and also get a hold of you? Um, well, 
I no longer have an active website, um, but my books, many of them, are available through the delightful um, catalog company. It's online also, Great Ideas for Teaching, Gift. Mm-hmm. And they carry several of my books. Okay. But um, people who have a question or want to know more about some of the things I've said can email me, and I will give you the, the address. And I try to answer every email I get, not always in a timely fashion, but as time permits. But I'd be happy to hear from your listeners. Mm-hmm. And that email address is e. T-C-P-U-B, et cetera, pub, E-T-C-P-U-B at email.com. And that comes directly to me. All right, great. And what are the names of your books so that we know what to look for? Well, I am co-author of two series. One Um, is the GROW series, Get Rid of Worksheets, (laughs) and uh, Mm G-R-O-W. And um, so there's uh, GROW parts of speech, vocabulary growth, room to grow, way to grow, etc. And they all focus on teaching either grammar or vocabulary skills paired with active listening and critical thinking. None of the lessons are conventional paper and pencil tasks. They're all interactive lessons. And all the materials are there in the book, all the, less, all the lists, all the discussions, I mean, excuse me, all the directions, all the um, pages that you can copy to make cards for the kids to manipulate and use, and they're all there in the Grow book. Other series I am proud to be affiliated with and co-author of is five-minute therapy, which are the lists of the lists and directions for how to function in a short burst of therapy, um, where the kids' goals for articulation production are to produce literally in a five-minute session, or maybe ten minutes if you have the time, a hundred to hundred and fifty words. So you say the word and they repeat it, say it, repeat it, say it, repeat it. You can actually get a kid, even a second grader, to do about 130 words in five minutes. And what we've done in five-minute therapy books is is, um, prepare for you all the checklists, the assessments, and then all the initial whatever S-words, all the medial S-words, all the final S-words, all the phrases with medial S, final S, initial S, all the sentences, all the reading lists, all the homework, all the activities you can try. And then the next book would be K and G or F and V or TH or L. And we've done that. There are about 120 pages in each of those books just targeting the individual sound. Wow. So that's really... Um, between the GROW series, which focuses on language, which, I'll be honest, teaching language is my passion. Um, articulation is just part of the job for me. It's not <laughs> my strength. I'm not bad at it. I've had many, many successes. I, I would say that you know, almost probably 95% of my kids have been successful, but it's mm. not my passion. 
so. I am so passionate about grammar that I like to think I have inspired an entire generation of kids to care about their grammar. I may be deluding myself, Shar, but I think that's the case. Mm, That's a good thing. Well, Linda, we have about a minute left, and I wanted to ask you one more question. What have you enjoyed most about being an SLP? Um, I think the intimacy of the speech room setting is my greatest reward from teaching speech. I get to know those kids even better than their classroom teacher because I share myself with the kids and they return the favor by sharing a lot about themselves. I'm the one who walks up to them in the hall and says, is your grandmother feeling better today? And the teacher will say, what, what, what's wrong with her grandmother? But that connection that comes from working in the intimate setting is a large part of what I love about it. And the big thing is that as a speech pathologist, every day of my career, I made a difference in a child's life. Every single day. It doesn't get any better than that. You know, I've been a speech pathologist now. In December, it's more 50 years ago that I graduated with a degree in speech correction. And I still have a passion for it. I still have the energy for it. I am still every day creating new lessons to effectively teach speech and language. And that's not, I'm not just saying that. That's the truth. Every day I continue developing lessons. Well, you're an inspiration and you have so many insights. And thank you so much for sharing. And I would love to have you come back in a few months to share some more because I know that we just scratched the surface. <laughs> Well, thanks for making me welcome and um, for giving me the opportunity. It's been way more fun than I suspected. (laughs) Thanks so much. Well, you're very welcome, Char. Thanks so much for your time and support doing this. Mm -hmm. And for everything you've done all these years, the field in general. Oh, bless you. Thanks, Linda. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.